In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever into the ages of all ages, amen. So I find myself oftentimes sitting with people in spiritual guidance and in confession, and something that comes up time and time and time again is lust. But oftentimes when people, um, when we, we get to this conversation um, about lust, uh, it's not always in the ways that you would imagine. It's not always in, it's not always in a context of, of sexual lust, although it may be. Um, but sometimes it's, it's in a different context. So I figured it would be a, it would, this, it would be a great opportunity to share with you all um, the very practical, simple, clear teaching and advice of the church and um, of multiple holy fathers that have come before us on, on how, how, to, how to deal with, um, with lust and, and intimacy and all of these things. So let's just start with a few definitions. The definition of lust as we understand it is not necessarily limited to the sexual sphere, but it has to do with anything that I desire which is outside the will of God for me now. So it could be it could be money, it could be fame, it could be power, um, it could be position, it could be just a form of covetousness, a form of wanting something that somebody else has that I don't have. Um, and that could lead to jealousy and all kinds of other things we've talked about before. But the simple, the simple act of desiring something which is not in the will of God for me now, it's not in the cards that, he, that, he's dealt, that, I've, that I've been dealt in life. It's, you know, I, I, I wish I had this or I wish I had that. That is the essence of what lust really is. And that is, it's, and it's, a, it's a root sin. Like other sins come from lust. Covetousness comes from lust. Jealousy comes from lust. It's a form of entitlement. It's a form of, of feeling that I deserve this or I want this or I should have this it's kind of a form of that let's illustrate so in in this in the paradise of the fathers there's this story where this young monk at the end of the day at the end of the work day is sitting at at the at the the, the table with his spiritual elder and they sit down to eat and his spiritual elder tells him how was your day and he goes ah oh, it was exhausting and I've been looking forward to this bowl of beans all day long. I've just been dreaming about it all day long. And his spiritual father tells him, really? He says, yes. He goes to him, I want you to go and eat meat. And he says, what? He says, I want you to go and eat meat. He says, what do you mean? He goes, go find a chicken, go do something. And that's why he says, but father, it's the fast. It was a time of fasting and the monks don't eat that much meat to begin with. You know, some monks don't eat any meat at all. And he tells them why. He says, just, just do it. And you know, it wasn't like in our time where, you know, he just went to the local grocery store and got a roast chicken or he went into the freezer and got like a frozen chicken breast. You know what I mean? If he was gonna, if he was gonna have some chicken or if he was gonna have some, he had to chase the animal, he had to catch the animal, he had to kill the animal, he had to feather it. You know, like it was, it was a process. So hours later, he comes back and he tells him, if his father asks him, were you obedient? He said, yes, but father, I don't understand why. And his father says this to him. He says, it is better to eat meat without lust than to eat beans with lust. It is better to eat meat without lust than to eat beans with lust. You see, lust is like a fire. And if we, if we throw more wood into the fire it grows if we ignore the fire it dies down and eventually will die completely but the trick is to not the trick is to not throw more wood into the fire the trick is to just leave the fire alone jesus gives us very clear simple teaching about this. He says to us, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. 
The key word in this, fra- in this phrase, and, and some of us will look at this and say, well, that's impossible. You know what I mean? Have you seen what summertime is like in Toronto, Abuna? Nobody wears clothes, you know, right? Etc. Etc. And we could make a thousand excuses for ourselves. Have you seen what the billboards look like, Abuna? You can't drive down the gardener without... Have you seen... Yes, I live in the city. I, 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 live, I live here too. I'm a young man, just like all the other young men in this audience. You know, I have the same biology as all of you. I understand. We're not understanding what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying something. He's saying whoever looks at a woman to lust for her. So whoever looks at a woman, I'm looking at a whole bunch of women right now, right? But am I looking at you with the intent, with the purpose of lusting or not. This is the key word with the purposes of lusting. It is inevitable that temptation will come our way. It is inevitable that temptation will come our way. One young monk goes to St. Anthony. We've told this story before, but just to remind you, one young monk goes to St. Anthony, tells him, Father, there is no hope for my salvation. And he says to him, why? He says, He says, Father, I'm continually assaulted by wicked, demonic, filthy thoughts. And uh, St. Anthony says to him, he says to him, okay, so? He says to him, my my mind is continually bombarded with these thoughts, Father. There's no hope for me. And he says to him, well, do you entertain those thoughts? Do you relish in them? Do you enjoy them? Do you mull over them? Or do you brush them away? He told him, I don't understand. He told him, look up. He said, yes. He said, do you see those vultures in the desert? He says, yes. He says, can you prevent them from circling above your head? And he says, no. He says to him, can you prevent them from making a nest in your hair? And he says, yes. And he says, so it is with temptation. We can't prevent We can't prevent temptation. And Jesus didn't call us to live in some sterile utopia. He called us to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's and 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 that's fine. He knows. He knows that there's going to be all kinds of influences on us that are going to lead us to the kingdom and all kinds of influences on us that would not. And he's okay with that because he knows that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus wants to put the focus for you and for me. Look, we can't battle everything. We can't battle what people wear and what billboards are on the gardener. But we can be very purposeful about our intentions. What is my intention? Why am I looking? Why am I searching? Why am I asking? Why am I curious? That we can be very intentional about. There's something else we really need to define because, well, I'll tell you in a minute after we define it. Intimacy is completely different. Intimacy is looking at what you do have and cherishing it, holding it close, being familiar with it, having rapport, building rapport, being together. Intimacy is a, is a drawing closer. And I'll tell you something, almost every sin that we do is just a substitution of what we should for what we ought not. I should be like eating healthy, but I'm eating junk food, right? And uh, a couple of months ago, we had a visiting priest who asked us, you know, and he talked a lot about this substitution that happened in the Garden of Eden and the substitution that happens in our life. And he asked us all a very poignant question. He said, he said, high schoolers say they live on vitamin J. Vitamin J is vitamin junk food, right? And he asked us, what, what vitamin J do you live on? Vitamin junk or vitamin Jesus, right? And that closeness, that rapport is an expression of love. The word love that we use in English comes from Greek words. And the Greek words, there's three of them with three different meanings, philo, agape, and eros. And there's no hierarchy between them. Really, some people think there is, but we we don't really acknowledge that. We believe that God loves us with all three 
of forms of love. The first love, agape, is a selfless love. It's a love that gives and expects nothing in return. But it's also an impersonal love. It's a love that where you love somebody, you expect nothing in return, and you know nothing about them. A very good example of it is you work in the financial district, and as you're walking, you're going to probably cross 17 people who are panhandling. And each one of them, you look at them, and you stick your hand in your pocket, and you, and you try to give them, and you want to give to everybody. And you want to give them, why do you want to give them? Because you love them. Why do you love them? Because they're made of the same stuff you are. They're made of flesh and blood. Because they're made in the image and likeness of God. Because they are precious in the eyes of God. That's why you love them. And it doesn't matter whether his name is Bill or Joe or John or Jimmy. It doesn't matter who he is. Personally, it matters, it matters that he is a beloved child of God. And so you wish to give him. It's impersonal. It doesn't, you can make it personal. You can sit down on the sidewalk and have a conversation with him, but you can't have the conversation with him as you're giving the guy sitting on the sidewalk. You're going to have to sit on the sidewalk with him. Why? Because then you're trying, what you're trying to do is not have agape anymore. Now you're trying to have philo. Philo is a familiar love or a familial love or philo is the love of friendship. Philo is very personal. Philo is is a reciprocal love. Let me give you, an, give you like an illustration. You're at work, you're at school, a friend of yours on Monday morning asks you, how was your weekend? You say, my weekend was great. You say, what did you do on, they say, what did you do on your weekend? You're like, I went to church, I hung out with some friends, I did this, I did that, and so on and so on. They're like, oh great, and uh, what kind of friends? You have some, some of the friends from here and some friends there, and, then, and so on. And you tell them a little bit about your weekend. Then you ask them, oh, you know, I'm trying to be polite, how was your weekend? And they say it was good. And you say, we ask them, what did you do? And they say, stuff. And you say, well, where did you go? And they say, somewhere. And you say, with who? And there's friends. You know what I mean? And, and in the end, you don't know anything. That relationship isn't going to go very far. Why? Because the other person isn't reciprocating. The other person is taking or listening or whatever you want to call it. But they're not reciprocating. So it's going to be hard to build a friendship with that person because friendship love is philo, is a reciprocal love. Some people say God only loves us with agape. That's not true. In fact, one of the beautiful services in the church is the service that we pray called Midnight Praises. And during Midnight Praises, the introduction of Midnight Praises, um, we sing a hymn that has a repeating chorus. And the repeating chorus says, glory be to you, O lover of humankind. But the word lover there is not like, because we only have one word in English, why there's three words in Greek. In Greek, it's doxase phila nethrope, the friend, the family of humankind. Sometimes you may experience that you're standing and praying, looking up to almighty God in heaven, and you feel like God is almost telling you like, no, no, don't look up to me. I want to have a conversation with you eye to eye. I want to have a conversation with you. I want to be on the same level. I was incarnate. I was born in a filthy manure filled manger so I could be just like you. I want to be with you. I want to be on your level. That's, that's philo love. Eros is the, where we get the word erotic. Eros is, is the word that's associated with intimacy and sexuality and, and all of that. But that's not really, and that's why we have difficulty like picturing God loving us with an erotic love. But the fathers tell us that he does. So then there must be something else. There must be something that we're missing. What is this Eros? Eros is an in, intense, extremely intense, creationist love. Eros is a love with which you, you love so deeply it, it transcends reason. You know, and, uh, you know, his high school kids come and talk to me sometimes and they tell, you, tell me, oh, you know, Father John, I got a girlfriend. I'm like, okay, great. Tell me about your girlfriend. I'm like, she's just, and they're looking for words and she's just perfect, you know? And then you say, well, I'm, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you met the one, you know? And then he's like, yeah, she's just it's just everything, like everything. And they just don't have the words, you know? 
And there are no words. And I'm not making, I'm not making fun. I'm actually, I'm actually relishing in that. That that person has a love which, which, and you ask them, why do you love this person? And I just do, you know, and there's no reason, there's no rationale behind it. You know, it's completely irrational. Now, it's hard to found a lifelong relationship on something which is completely irrational, right? But eros, erotic love, is completely irrational. It's deeply rooted in attraction. The fathers say that out of God's deep, intense attraction to humankind, he was incarnate. Like, when you have two magnets and they repel, they either repel each other or they attract each other. God was like that magnet who just could not stay away from humanity. And thus he was incarnate. And he, he came and he came and took flesh. And he rescued us from our self-destruction, right? St. Dionysius writes about this beautifully. He says, God himself is our archetype of love. It is he, the creator of all, out of extreme erotic love, who moves outside of himself and approaches humanity with burning, uh, uh, humanity burning with great goodness and love and eros. It's a creationist love. Out of deep attraction comes this love, this irrational love that cannot be described in words, and out of it comes, out of it comes creation. That's how God created the wor world. Later on, St. Dionysius and St. Maximus say the same thing. It is he who is the fullness of erotic love. I'm not getting, this is, this is, these are slides from a different talk about the theology of sexuality, and I'm not going to go there. But in that talk, we quote multiple other fathers that say that Jesus ascending on the cross, I hope I don't scandalize you all, is the greatest human erotic act of love think of it he was stripped naked that's usually what happens in erotic love and he gave himself that's also what happens in erotic love the gift the giver is oneself and the gift is oneself and he gave himself for the life of the world and new life was born out of his gift they say very similar things about Holy Communion, but we're not going to go there. We're keeping today like super nuts and bolts and practical. Other portions of Scripture say the same thing in Isaiah. He says, for as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. God rejoices over you like a bridegroom on his wedding night. That's Eros. <laughs> in case anybody needed in case anybody needed clarification, right? Look at what St. John says in his uh, St. John says that Jesus says in his final prayer, in his final prayer in John 17, Jesus prays and says that they may all be one even as you Father are in me, that they also may be in us. That's erotic love. So that the world may believe that you sent me. What's crazy, what's crazy is that, that the Lord Jesus Christ wants himself and the, and, the, and the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, to just envelop us, to just bring us all in. Like maybe, maybe I spent too much time studying English literature and I see like, you know, like, you know, sexual symbols and everything. But like, that's very much, you know, that's very much how intercourse works. One person brings the other in. This is, this is the work of the Holy Trinity. Like, look at this. It's, it's, it's crazy. Jesus' request of the Father is crazy. He says, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, to what degree does he want us to be one? He wants us to be one with the Holy Trinity as much as, as the Father and, and him are one. Like when we talk about the Holy Trinity, we say like they're three, per they're like three persons, one essence. They, there's no 
separation at all between the, pers- the, the different persons of the Trinity. They're completely inseparable, distinct, but completely inseparable. It's to that degree his wish for us to be united. We find the ultimate model, like, or the prototype, or the original of which we have been made in, in the image and likeness of, of this love, of this intimacy, of this closeness, is in the Holy Trinity. But we're not going to get too much into that. But see, what we do, what we do when we choose to lust, is we substitute that intimacy for lust. That's what we do. We find intimacy difficult to grasp. We find it not always easy to, to do. Uh, it requires vulnerability. You've got to find the right small group. You've got to find the right family. You've got to re- find the right... And like, I don't know how to do that with God. Like, I don't know how to be that close with God that I feel intimacy with God. And so we substitute. We have a need. If you're thirsty and there's nothing but poison to drink, eventually, you know, eventually we'll drink it, right? The problem, Jesus tells us, is because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Temptation is all around us, and it's, it's, it's hard to stay faithful. It's start hard to stay faithful to our heavenly bridegroom. And the problem arises when I don't have any guardrails. That's what Jesus is telling us. Because of lawlessness, there will be people who will have no law, their hearts will grow cold. If I'm in a committed relationship, there's certain things now that I just don't do. I used to do them before. They're not immoral. They're not wrong. I just don't do them. Why? To honor my wife. You and I are in a committed relationship. I have some news for you. Maybe you knew this or maybe you didn't. There's no such thing, at least that I'm aware of, as a Christian who is single. If you're Christian, you are already betrothed to Christ. You are in an engagement relationship. Any, any romantic relationship I have outside of that relationship and what it entails is called cheating by most people's terms. And Jesus forgives me. And we're going to talk about how marriage plays into that in a minute. And Jesus forgives me. And Jesus forgives me. But we're called to be faithful. That's what we're called. We're called to have our eyes set on him and to recognize that he has his eyes set on us. And like any, like any romantic couple, like any engaged couple, all of his thoughts are about you. And all of my thoughts ought to be about him. Wow, Father John, you've just like totally upped the ante. Like that's why I can't, that's why to look at another woman to lust for her is to cheat. I can't be walking down Bloor Street with my wife looking at other women. I'm going to get slapped. (laughs) Mary's too nice to slap me, but whatever. She'll be really sad, (laughs) right? You just can't do that. But I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't sleep with them. I didn't talk with them. I didn't any, but, but you spent all afternoon looking at other, at other women. If you happen to be looking and you notice whatever, and you look away because you don't want to be thinking about that, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about, you know, the double take and so on. So what are we going to do? It seems like the bar, you know, went from here to here in the last 15 minutes. What are we going to do about that, right? Jesus himself is calling you and calling me to be faithful. Jesus himself wants us and he wants you and he wants me. Jesus himself is saying, return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now, I will announce to you that I will restore twice as much to you. And remember, folks, just like pause here for a second. We're using like sexual lust as, a, as kind of our platform for discussion. 
but like remember the bowl of beans at the beginning this could apply to anything you know if you're married and you're faithful and you're not really tempted to do anything outside of that but you're looking at your neighbor's car that's called lust as well if God wanted that for you right now if God wanted the promotion if God wanted this for you he would have all forms of covetousness have their roots in lust and and parentheses Jesus is telling us come back come back to that first love that we had he says it in Revelation 2 come back to that first love that we had once upon a time we had this love between us and nothing else mattered come back to that remember those days come back Jesus is calling he's calling me and he's calling you and he's calling us to return back and to remember those days he tells his disciples he tells Mary to tell his disciples in the resurrection go to Galilee and there you will see me why Galilee because that's where they first met him go back to the place where you first met him if you want to go there geographically and you want to go back to the address where you first met god go if you can't physically go go there in your mind go there in your heart bring up pull up old pictures remember what it was like to pray at that time remember what it was like to be alone with god at that time close the door of your room and spend that time be with him and him alone a big a big part of why we fast this coming fast you know we're really big into fasting in the coptic church is because jesus himself fasted this fast and we believe that he fasted this fast and then so we are going to fast this fast with him like we're going to participate with him we're not doing this for him in fact it's the other way around he did it for us and so we say, we'll join him. When I was a kid, like I hated cleaning my room and it would get so messy that I'd get completely overwhelmed and I wouldn't know where to start. So then my sister would tell me, don't worry about it. I'll clean your room for you. I had a great sister, right? She prepared me very well for marriage. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It certainly doesn't work that way anymore, right? Now I clean. Now I clean after the girls. But anyways, it doesn't matter, right? So... She'd tell me, I'll clean your room for you, right? You just go downstairs and go do something you want to do or something. Come back in 20 minutes. Be like, 20 minutes? This would take me all day. She's like, don't worry, you'll be done in 20 minutes. So I go downstairs and I think to myself, you know what? I can't just let her clean my room. Like, I have to, like, do something. So I'd go back upstairs and I'd tell her, okay, let me help you. And she'd give me, like, okay, hang this, okay, whatever, right? But, like, she, she like, she cleaned my room, right? Jesus fasted for us and then we tell him okay like let me join you in your fasting he didn't need to fast he did it for us why so that he could be tempted why so that he could be victorious over temptation right and the first temptation the first temptation that he had was a temptation of lust he's starving he hasn't eaten for 40 days or 40 nights and Satan comes and tells him or the tempter comes and tells him take these stones and make them into bread lusting for the bowl of beans right and he answers satan he says man shall not live by bread alone but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of god it's normal to feel hungry it's abnormal to understand that as a stimulus to eat junk it would be normal to, to feel hungry and then to eat food which nourishes you. Jesus is telling us that when we feel lust, what we're really feeling is a need for intimacy with God. What we're really feeling is a need for intimacy with God. When we feel lustful, we're not feeling some sexual urge that I just need to fulfill with somebody else, with myself. It doesn't matter. I just got to stop feeling this way. When we feel lustful, what we're really feeling is a need for intimacy with God. This, this is critical. This is a game changer. Now, let's get really practical, okay? We're going to get like super, super practical. The thing is, when temptation comes our way, rarely does it just 
pounce on you like a tiger. Usually, it kind of sneaks up on you in plain view, you know? Usually, I know that temptation is coming my way. Usually, I know that I'm going to be tempted to go home tonight and raid the fridge. That's lust. It's a, gluttony is, a, is, is the cousin of lust. It's the other side of the coin, right? I'm already thinking about it. I'm already, and my intention of going home, like Jesus was telling us, I'm looking at the woman to lust for her. That's my purpose for looking. I'm going home with the purpose of raiding the fridge. It doesn't usually just pounce on you like a tiger. It usually kind of sneaks up on you quietly, but like you know it's coming. So when you feel that way, when you feel the temptation coming your way, but it's not quite there yet, it's just coming. The moment you clock on, the moment that you realize, the moment that you realize that it's coming there, this is what you have to do. Stop. Just stop everything you're doing. Stop. If you're walking, stop. If you're talking, stop. If you're on the phone, put the person on hold. If you're, you need 30 seconds. 30 seconds right now are going to be the difference between holiness and intimacy and sin, guilt, and a feeling of failure. And it's that feeling that you get after you fall in sin and you feel like the worst person in the world. Devil tempts us. And then when we fall, he kicks us while we're down. He has no dignity. He has no, no honor whatsoever, right? These coming 30 seconds from the moment that you realize the temptation are coming your way, this is the golden hour. In trauma, we, we realize there's this, you have one hour from the time somebody gets injured, you have one hour to, if they have a life-threatening injury to save their life. And after that hour, if you didn't do what you have to do in that hour, the chances you're gonna save their life are slim to none. This is the golden 30 seconds. And it's just 30 seconds. You can put somebody on hold for 30 seconds. You're in a rush going somewhere. You can stop walking for 30 seconds, right? Just stop. What are you going to do after you stop? You're going to pray. You're going to pray your brains out. You're going to pray like your life depends on it. You're going to pray like it's a, a situation of life and death. This is what I do. I just stop. I do the sign of the cross and I say, Lord Jesus Christ, save me. And then I jump to a couple of different prayers. I have three different prayers that work really well. The, uh, uh, the gang at guest services are gonna hand out to you now this, this pamphlet and this card. You may have seen them hanging around. You may have received it before. If it's a blessing to you, please take one. If not, you can decline if you have one already. Um, this, is the, this is a saint in the Orthodox Church. Her name is Saint Justina. And she was a beautiful young woman and there was this nobleman who wanted to marry her, but she didn't want to get married. She wanted to give her life to God. And so he goes to a magician and he asks him to get her to fall in love with him. He says, easiest trick in the book, right? So the nobleman goes away and he, the magician conjures up some demons and he tells him, go make this, go make her fall in love with him. They say, no problem, easy peasy. Everybody falls for lust. Easiest trick in the book, right? And they go and they assault her with lustful thoughts. Anyhow, they're not able to overcome her. And I'm not going to tell you the whole story, right? But eventually the magician himself converts to Christianity because he sees that she has power greater than his. And he actually becomes a bishop. And she becomes a nun. And later on in the era of martyrdom, they go together and are martyred. His name is St. Cyprian and her name is St. Justina. What did she do? How was she able to conquer this assault of an army of demons trying to cause her to fall in lust? She prayed. And she prayed this prayer here. This prayer goes like this. O Lord Jesus Christ, my God, lo, my enemies have risen up against me and have prepared a snare for my feet. My soul is brought low, but I have remembered thy name in the night and am made glad. When they compassed me round about, I have fled unto thee, hoping that mine adversary might not rejoice over me. For thou knowest, O Lord my God, that I am thy servant. For thee have I cupped the purity of my body, and to thee have I entrusted my soul. Wherefore, preserve thou thy lamb, O good shepherd. Do not permit the beast which seeketh to devour me to consume me, 
Grant me to be, prevail over the evil desires of my flesh. So a friend of mine mentioned this prayer um, to me a long time ago. And um, I started praying it, you know, at any time. Like this is like 15, maybe 20 years ago, uh, 15 years ago. And then I, you know, if, if, my, if I happened to see something I didn't want to see or whatever. So I'd like I'd look it up. And then I realized, you know, it was kind of impractical, like, in my past life and I worked in the hospital to just stop at any computer and like Google it and find it and then pray it then and there. So I printed it and I stuck it in my pocket. And then I realized well, it would be much more practical to print it on something small and compact. And so that's the story of where these cards came from. And the magical thing is a lot of people that I've shared this advice with, um, they've come back and told me, you know, this prayer serves almost like an eraser. Like sometimes you see stuff you, you really probably wish your eyes didn't see. And then later on in the day, you're, you're feeling weak and so on. And you really want to sin and you want to remember and you want to ruminate on the stuff. And it's like it's gone because you stopped. You see, it's hard to stop. It's hard to like stop thinking about something, but continue talking about something else. It's hard to kind of stop one process, but continue other processes. So that's why you have to just stop everything. Just stop everything you're doing and pray. This is one prayer that you could pray. Another thing you could do, this is a prayer that was taught to us by Dr. Nabil Bey when he visited us several years ago. He is a saintly man and Christian counselor, expert in all of these things, is the same thing. He gave exactly the same advice. I promise we didn't cheat from each other. He said, to, he said to us, stop, stop everything you're doing. Do the sign of the cross and cry out and say, in the name of Jesus, by the power of his blood, which he shed for me, by the authority of his divinity. And then he tells us, do what, you, what we do in baptism. Turn to the wicked thoughts, turn to the demons and renounce them and say, by Christ's authority, not by my own, by his power, which he by his power, by his blood, which he shed on the cross, by the mighty name of Jesus, you have no authority over my mind, my heart, my thoughts, my emotions, whatever you feel is under attack, right? This is what you do when temptation is coming your way. This is the damage control, right? This is how not temptation is coming your way. And you know, if it comes and knocks on your door, man, I'm going to sin. I know, I know it. I'm just going to fall. Right? So this is the damage control. And then you turn to Christ and you say, you, Lord Jesus Christ, have full and complete authority over my heart, my thoughts, my emotions, my, and so on. Right? Whatever you feel is under attack, renounce Satan and accept Christ and receive Christ and believe in Jesus. Give it to Jesus for him to protect you. Because we can't protect, we can't really protect ourselves. And then there's the Jesus prayer. You can always just stop, do the sign of the cross and pray the Jesus prayer with all your heart. Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Like that 10 times or so. Do the sign of the cross and continue on your merry way. I promise you the key is to stop. Just stop everything you're doing and pray. There's no such thing. You know, there's all these books about spiritual warfare. There's no such thing as humans battling demons. It, it just doesn't work that way. We, we can't. God fights on our behalf, but we have to extricate ourselves and, and give ourselves to God so that he can fight for us. And it's all in that stopping and praying and it says it's not a long drawn out prayer. I told you, put the person on hold, not hang up on them, right? 20, 10, 15, 30 seconds. Next up is prevention. An ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure, right? How can we prevent these things from coming our ways? Really, the easiest and best thing is avoidance. We all fall in the same sins in the same ways, at, usually at the same time of day, usually at the same place, usually using the same modalities and so on. Ask ourselves, what are these things? What are the triggers of my bad habits, right? I have bad habits. We all have bad habits. What are the triggers that cause me to fall into my bad habits and avoid them, right? 
speaking about the kingdom of heaven in Revelation 21 after Armageddon and the battle is won and everything, it says nothing impure will enter it. Okay, that's really all I want you to get from this. Nothing impure will enter it. This battle that we're talking about is not, it's not a battle of bad people. It's a battle of good people that are supposed to be full of holiness. If you have a cup and it's full to the brim, you can't add other stuff into it. The problem is that my cup, my capacity for holiness is not full. So I fill it with junk. So the solution, the long-term solution, we talked about damage control, we talked about prevention, now we're talking about long-term. The long-term solution to this is to fill up with holiness. If you read the Bible, read a little bit more. If you pray, pray a little bit more. If you uh, attend usually one liturgy a week and come and have communion, attend two. If you're used to confessing every month, but you find that after two, three weeks, you kind of lose your steam, ask your father of confession. If you can have a brief confession every two weeks, he won't say no. I had one guy who was confessing every three days. Every three days, I'd get a phone call. I'd get, I'd get multiple text messages th throughout the day, and around 11 p.m., I'd call him back, and he'd say, I'm so sorry to bug you when I've been bugging you all day. Do you mind if I just confess? And I'd say, sure, no problem. Three minutes on the phone, he would confess. I would pray the absolution for him. He'd go on his merry way. Every three days, he was fighting a very fierce battle with lust and pornography and masturbation. He just, he just had it and he just wanted nothing to do with it. And he felt so guilty. So I told him, I want you to come confess one day and not say that. And he said, well, you know what? I don't think I can hold out for more than three days. I said, okay, come and confess in three days. He did that. He confessed every three days for about three months. And he's been good since. God bless him and protect him and keep the demons away from him. And protect us all. Jesus tells us, for out of the heart proceed forth evil, murders, adulteries, and so on. The issue is my heart. The issue is filling my heart with holiness. Then there isn't room for this other stuff. It becomes distasteful. It becomes like, sure, like you do you. Like you want to go to strip clubs? Okay, like fine, no problem. But like not for me, you know? like no judgment whatever but like just not for me you know and that's what god is calling us to do he's calling us to change our purpose to change our purpose to change redirect realign our purpose and to make it our purpose is for holiness saint paul tells us wrapping up that you yourselves are the temple of god's spirit and he dwells in your midst and then he says something like that is so powerful. He tells us, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred or holy. And you together are that temple. God is telling you and he's telling me you're holy. Close your eyes now for a moment. Close your eyes and listen to God telling you, you are holy. You are holy. You belong in holiness. You reside in holiness. Your middle name is holy. This other stuff just has no place in your life, has no place in your mind, has no place in your conscience, in your subconscious, in your, in your imagination. It's time, it's time for us to fill up on our unholiness. And if we fall, take courage, take heart, be encouraged. In Proverbs it says, in Proverbs it says, the righteous fall seven times and they rise again. Don't be discouraged. God is not counting your falls or mine. It's not, this isn't a license for complacency, but rather encouragement that every time I'm in the mire and muck of sin and I look up to heaven and I reach my hand out of the water, out of the Sea of Galilee like Peter, 
and cry to Jesus and tell him, save me. Every one of those times brings so much pleasure to God's heart, brings so much pleasure to his heart. God loves you. God has called you to be his own. God has called you to share intimacy with him and with no other. Let us take this moment now to devote ourselves, to rededicate ourselves to him, to choose him, to choose faithfulness to him over any other, to choose to fill up with his holiness, to get closer to him now than we've ever been before. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand and sing and pray one last time.